Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. Dan Schreiber is not with us today, unfortunately. He is off doing community service. <laughs> By which I mean he's doing jury duty, which means he won't be here this week or next. But in his place, we are joined by our colleague and very, very good friend, Liang Lee. Now, some of you, the super duper fish fans, will already know who Liang is. She has appeared on our Meet the Elves feature in Club Fish. She was so good on that that we decided to ask her on to the main podcast. I'm sure you're going to really enjoy it. She's absolutely brilliant. If you want to know more about all the other elves, then go to nosuchthingsafish.com forward slash Apple and nosuchthingsafish.com forward slash Patreon. And if you go there, you can hear all the other episodes of Meet the Elves, as well as drop us a line, which is our mailbag show, compilations, and much, much more. Anyway, there's not much more to say today, apart from really hope you enjoy the show with Liang, and on with the podcast. And welcome to No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Hoban. My name is Anna Tashinsky, and I'm sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter Murray, and Liang Lee. And we are gathered here today with our four favourite facts from the last seven days. So, in no particular order, here we go. Liang, what's your fact? My fact this week is that during World War II, Bletchley Park was forced to have a teacup amnesty. Oh, so lovely. it was an amnesty, like where you have to go and turn your teacup in. And yeah, and you won't be arrested. You won't be arrested. And yet. you won't be arrested. <laughs> there was a there was a memo that was sent out that said it is regretted that owing to losses, it is no longer possible to provide service crockery for morning and afternoon teas. Wow. And that was all they did at Bletchley. So That's it, all. The, yeah, they only drank tea. They didn't do any important work <laughs> at all. No longer providing service crockery for morning and afternoon teas. I feel like that's the point at which. England really started to decline. And then Yeah. <laughs> the start of England's decline was the middle of World War Two. Is that what we're saying? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Counterpoint. Yeah. 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 Wasn't the famous thing about Bletchley was that Alan Turing, who worked there, used to chain his mug to the radiator. Yeah. That's and then the story, and it? then poor Alan would would be teased by people picking the lock on the chain oh. and nicking his teacup just to annoy him. If he can't set a code on his lock that's not possible to break by the others, then I don't know if I trust this guy to win our war. Mm. The um the thing about Turing is I read an interview with someone else who worked at Bletchley and apparently when he wasn't in his office he used to tie his mug to his hand. So if they go outside, there's a big lake at Bletchley and they'd often have like a picnic out there and he would be there with it tied by rope to his hand so no one could steal it. Fantastic. Wasn't there a rumour that they threw crockery into the lake? Do we think that was just a rumour? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. So I found quite a lot of sources, kind of diary entries and things Sorry, like that. Sorry, sources or sources? Brilliant. So- Brilliant. Very good, very good. <laughs> I went to Bletchley myself and dredged the lake and found sources. <laughs> and I found some sources <laughs> that people like Josh Cooper, who was the really kind of eccentric head of the air section, he would go around the lake, finish his coffee and then throw his cup into the lake. Nice. Um, and also, there's a good reason for Alan Turing to chain his mug up because apparently his deputy, Hugh Alexander, would also be known to throw his teacups into the lake. Why? Was there a reason for it? I th- was it like a celebration or was it, oh, we've cracked today's code? They were all Greek. 
Right, exactly. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> they would just smash the plates and throw the teacups away. Yeah, it feels like that, doesn't it? Yeah, and well, it wasn't just lakes as well. There was another memo <laughs> that said that they ended up finding loads of cups and saucers in the shrubs. <laughs> <laughs> That's it feels amazing. like there was some kind of weird Easter egg hunt game going on that we don't know about. If we know anything, it's that they were good at keeping secrets at Bletchley. And I think this one is still Official Secrets Act. Um, yeah, you know, because hidden. Liang, you emailed them and asked them if it was true, right? Yeah, well, the thing I was mostly interested in checking was something that said that after the war, the administrators at Bletchley dredged the lake, hoping to find kind of discarded equipment that was used to kind of crack mm. the Enigma code and really fascinating kind of historical artifacts and instead all they found was giant heaps of cutlery and crockery <laughs> and tea sauces and stuff which would have been fantastic so I emailed them just to double check and I talked to this amazing woman called Heather hi Heather if you're listening and she said that she's um, always listening she... <laughs> she's actually translating what we're saying into three languages simultaneously and it's, yeah. yeah it's being encrypted right now yeah, yeah. but she said unfortunately they think it's a myth or certainly a bit of an exaggeration. But they do know that certainly Josh Cooper may have thrown a cup in once. Was wow, the exact wow. quote from down. Bletchley. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. screen. They're drawing Oops. us away from the real story, well, I think. Well, that's it, that's it. As Anna said, maybe actually it's something very secret to do with the way that we cracked codes or fought the war and they just don't yeah. want people to know. Fair enough. Should we say, for maybe for international listeners... I think we should. Like yeah. what Bletchley was. Oh, I think yeah. now we've been speaking yeah. for 10 minutes. Right, so early 40s, Britain on the ropes... Uh, there's a war going on. There's a war going on. We're about to go downhill. The, okay. <laughs> the, the tea service has declined dramatically. The, the Nazis have overrun Europe. And they are communicating using Enigma machines. They look like typewriters. And they allow you very easily to, to encrypt what you're saying. It divides it into blocks of letters. It looks like complete rubbish. And the, the Germans are so confident about the security of Enigma because there are 364 billion possible codes. And there's a new code every day. They're so confident they just transmit the messages. They don't try and jam the signal or anything. So these messages are out there and they're undecipherable. It's a nightmare, you know, completely Cocky. impossible. Cocky. These and that Nazis. was their mistake. <laughs> <laughs> because the, um, Polish intelligence had just cracked Enigma just before the war and handed part of the secret, a big part of it, to British intelligence. So at Bletchley Park, which is this country estate in England, the British government gathers together hundreds and hundreds of code crackers and administrators and people who set to work, including famously Alan Turing, but like thousands lots, of people uh, by the end. Who do a lot of variety of stuff, right? Yeah. Like famous chess yeah, yeah. players or people who are great at solving crosswords. Yeah, yeah. Like it's an odd collection. Everyone just sort of piles into Bletchley Park and starts solving codes and cracking codes. And it goes on until the war ends. And it's amazingly successful. It is. Yeah. And also the thing about Bletchley, again, uh, that it's famous for here is the fact that it was mostly women. So it was yeah. women outnumbered men at Bletchley by about eight to one. I think, and they were there doing that mechanical work of every day taking down um, all the codes that were coming through. through. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I hadn't realised that Baroness Trumpington, mm. who was a real <laughs> character uh, in British politics until she died a few years ago, was at Bletchley. I swear there was a period where sort of any elderly posh woman. Uh, in sort of the 90s when I was growing up had actually been at Bletchley at some point. Because mm. also they weren't allowed to say anything, were they? Yeah, so yeah, it was exactly. like national secrets for so long, so long, so long. And then the 90s came along and everything got declassified and everyone went, oh yeah, I was there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so was I. Oh yeah, I was. Well, they had That's a whole right. thing where they were trying to recruit what they called boffins and debs. Boffins being kind of clever people and mm. debs being debutants, as in oh. high society socialite women. Oh, why? Um, because they felt that, you know, 
they had that kind of um, level of education. Or and they were often, often you know, not bilingual. Exactly. They often, they could speak French or they could speak German or they'd had a university education. And so, as you say, it turns out that a lot of the people there came from quite high society and then they found themselves, you know, bunking with all of these yeah, random in people in Bletchley. Because they were posh, they were often like quite eccentric and prone to misbehaviour because they could get away with it. So a lot of the women would um, bunk off constantly and go and shag their boyfriends, for instance. There was one woman who was in charge called Pamela Rose, who she was actually an actress. She wanted to be in the West End. And yeah. she was in charge of overseeing 50 women in one of the huts. And one of them was actually Baroness Trumpington, who was called Jean Campbell Harris at the time. And at one point, she had to stuff Baroness Trumpington into a laundry basket and rolled her down the corridor <laughs> into an officer's room, I think. It was quite annoyed who was trying to do serious work. Was that to make her escape? I think it might have been a bit of japery. I'm not sure okay. if it was a genuine punishment or Bad having news. Bad news, we've lost another... 30,000 troops at sea. One of the convoys has been sunk by the U-boats, which was due to us not cracking a vital message. Good news, we all had a great team-building exercise that we got in laundry basket. It was amazing. They would, um, When they turned up, they would be asked two questions. One, do you like crossword puzzles? Two, are you engaged to be married? Really? That was your first wow. two questions. And then if you said, yes, I like crosswords, and no, I'm not engaged, they go, okay, now you can have an interview. Oh, you're through. Know, through, through that's yeah, 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 yeah. And also, the, thing, the amazing thing about the secrecy is just how secret it was, as in, you don't know what the person in the next hut is doing. You don't know what the people in the same room as you are doing. So often you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Like you're. <laughs> I've been in some jobs where I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't really know what anyone else was doing. Is it possible you've worked at GCHQ without knowing it? That could be true. I thought I was an accountant because it's just numbers. Oh my! Isn't it? You've you've done some significant stuff. I bet oh without realizing. But for whom? <laughs> <laughs> Because you, you're just like cracking these and you're grinding through huge numbers yeah. of huge amounts of information. And, um, you know, Churchill wrote a six volume history of the Second World War, never mentioned Bletchley because it was still super, super secret. Because they had to hide the fact that towards the end of the war, Hitler was an open book. As in Bletchley Park were getting and translating and deciphering his messages before like, Rommel or Goering yeah. or whatever. Mm. That's incredible. And, they didn't, and then you have to yeah. pretend they haven't. Yeah. And yeah. And the fact that the secrecy lasted for so long as well. There are so many veterans who, you know, took the secrets to their graves or there are amazing stories of, you know, husband and wives who met at Bletchley but didn't actually know what the other person was doing. And then they had kids and they couldn't tell their kids what they were doing during the war as well. Yeah. And so it was just de decades and decades and decades of secrecy. And what was really fascinating to me is that um, the first person to kind of publish a book about what happened at Bletchley was treated as such a traitor by a lot of the veterans who were there. Wow. It was quite self-aggrandizing. It was, you know, kind of like, oh, I, I did this and I did this. And that oh, was yeah. vital to the war effort and all of this. So that was probably another reason he sounded like a bit of an arrogant prick. But um, <laughs> for a lot of the veterans at Bletchley, it was one That's of those things food. where it was, you know, yeah, it's yeah. secret and we're going to take Ooh. those secrets to our graves. Yeah. Have you guys been there? Yeah, I've yeah. been. A while ago. Actually, I right. can't remember much about really it, pathetically. Yeah. I was there for a... Um, public speaking competition as a teenager. Unfortunately, you were engaged to be married, so you couldn't <laughs> get a job there. No, I hate crosswords. <laughs> yeah, right, that's, yeah. Cool. Oh, that's um, cool. Do you know if you were interviewed there, another question you might be asked was if you were interviewed by Dilly Knox, who was one of the most important people at Bletchley, and he was a real eccentric. And he would ask people the question, uh, which way round do the hands of a clock go? Brilliant. What would you uh, say to that? Um, Clockwise. <laughs> You're out. You put the minute hand on first and then the hour hand. And then the second hand? You're oh. building a clock. 
Oh, I see. You've you've interpreted it that way. Second it goes right at the bottom, I think. You've thought outside the box. But no, uh, the correct answer, according to him, is it depends whether you're looking at the clock or whether you are the clock. Brilliant. Um, that's interesting because I imagine no one got that right. So <laughs> how on earth did we actually... to get anyone in? No one got a job. Britain lost the war. Is, yeah. Yeah. It sounds a lot like the kind of questions that you think get asked at Oxbridge interviews and things yeah. like that. And considering that yeah. so many people mm. there were from Oxbridge. Maybe they did kind of think outside the box in that way. I think it was that sort of thing. What was the name of the person that you said wanted to be a West End actress? That was Pamela Rose. Pamela Rose. So I wonder when Pamela Rose was at Bletchley, whether or not she joined the Bletchley Park Dramatic Club. She did. She did loved she? it. Oh, yeah, wow. I'm sure she did. I loved reading about this. <laughs> so at Bletchley, it turns out that there was quite a campus-like feel there. A lot of people, you know, their university was interrupted by the war and they got recruited by Bletchley. And so one particular veteran described it as being like their university. So there was all the other kind of stuff that you associate with uni there was like social clubs they had um christmas pantos that they put on <laughs> and he's like i don't remember any of this at uni no. <laughs> i remember being debagged a lot <laughs> <laughs> you were the one in the laundry basket weren't you? <laughs> but one person that i found that i thought was so interesting is that olivia newton john's dad Bryn Newton-John, he was an officer at Bletchley and he was a member of the drama club. No way. Wow. Really? Yeah, he finds his name, cool. Bryn Newton-John, in all of the programs for all the great. shows that they'd put on. Just on the like the results they got, because oh, it yeah. does, it's, it, it is quite abstract and it's very sort of, you know, there's people like poshos in the countryside and, and actually lots of them weren't posh, lots of them were Wrens, Women's Royal Naval Service, who mm. were getting on with the like basic work every single day. Um, but some of the things they did, for example, they worked out the location of every milk cow in the Atlantic Ocean. And then... <laughs> That's pretty easy. I, would say, I reckon I could do that now. Another one on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the milk cows were the um, tankers that were in the Atlantic and they were to refuel uh, German U-boats. Oh, really? And there were you know a couple of dozen maximum and they obviously were the most significant thing for the U yeah. entire U-boat operation. They were all located thanks to Enigma and they were all sunk so the U-boat mm -hmm. that was a big part of winning the war against the U-boats I really like one of the ways that they worked like you say the Germans had improved the, the Enigma so we did know how they worked but it was still hard to crack the codes mm -hmm. every day uh, and so what you needed was some information that you knew. So when they sent the information, you know what you're looking for. And so what they did was they would drop bombs in very obvious places and they drop it in a place where you know exactly where it is. And so the Germans then would send a message saying there's been a bomb in, you know, oh, 25 brilliant. miles north of Dresden or something. And you know what 25 miles north of Dresden is. And you know, probably might even by then know that you're looking for the word minen, which is German for a mine or a bomb. That's so you would amazing. know what you're looking for. God, and it was called so clever. gardening. I, th yeah. I think this is the kind of thing where we're like, that's so clever. And if you were one of the actual code breakers listening, you'd be like, God, that's the most basic thing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Can I give you something on crockery and throwing Ooh, yeah. crockery yeah. around? Yeah. So this fact was perhaps about people throwing crockery. So I thought I'd look at plate smashing in Greece. I've seen various articles about where it comes from and some people say oh it's an ancient greek thing that they would do in funerals i'm not really so sure i think it might be quite a modern thing that came in the 1960s and 70s um, but actually in 1969 it was banned by the military dictator uh, georgios papadopoulos um, he banned any plate smashing in <laughs> greece uh, because it was so dangerous 
Oh, not because we didn't have enough crockery for afternoon tea anymore. No, because they set up <laughs> these um, these factories where you would make fake crockery. Amazing. So it was like, it was real crockery. It was made of China and stuff, but it was like really low quality. There was no patterns on it, anything like that. It was just something that was made deliberately so you could then smash it. Uh, and there were 53 manufacturers of these fake plates in Thessaloniki alone. Stop no. it. Yeah, honestly. Uh, so good. How many plates were being smashed? There was, in the 60s, up to 100,000 per month, it's estimated. Wait, what? <laughs> what? Why? At the, end just, of your, at the end of your meal, if you go to a yeah. Greek restaurant, they'll um, they'll smash the plates for you. It's just like a tradition. They'll smash it for you. You don't even get to do the smash it. <laughs> well, you used to do it yourself, and then like health and safety came oh. in, and you would get like some waiters would, you know, put on their glasses so that they don't <laughs> get any <laughs> things in their eyes and do it. In They'd the actually corner. take them away for the controlled explosion. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and today, there's only one manufacturer of fake plates in That's the whole tragic. of Thessaloniki. That's, that was actually what, you remember when Greece had the terrible recession around the time of the credit crunch? That was yeah. mostly caused by the fake plate industry, wasn't it? Yeah. But like, what is a fake plate? Is in, what's a fake plate? It's interesting because you could still use them as a plate. Absolutely. But they're much cheaper to manufacture. Yeah. They're not bothered if there's cracks in there or anything like that. There's no patterns on there. They're just white china plates. And again, not as fun to smash, though. I bet there were proper hardcore smashers who still went for the sort of £100 crockery yeah, set. Yeah, who still go to the, um, to the museum. <laughs> Yeah. In Athens, <laughs> that vase. Yeah. Is this why we're not giving the Parthenon marbles back? We think they're going to be used in a sort of smash orgy. I don't know if you've seen the um, Elgin marbles, but they are quite smashed already. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do you think they got like that in the first place? Stop the podcast. Stop the podcast. Hey, everyone. This week's episode of Fish is sponsored by HelloFresh. Yes, hello, fresh, just one O, in case Dan's pronunciation confused you, <laughs> is the service that delivers really delicious meals to your door in the form of perfectly portioned ingredients and recipe cards that you follow to convince yourself you're a gourmet chef. That's right. Hello, fresh. Make sure that you can save time. Uh, I have three kids. We're constantly trying to be inventive with the things that they eat, but unfortunately, neither me or my wife know how to cook. Hello, fresh steps in here and allows us to actually keep them alive with good food. And that's really nice for Dan that it brings those guys together because in my household for instance this week we had a sweet potato ginger and garlic tofu stew which mm. was so delicious it was like limey, spinachy, tangy and I can't cook but my husband can and was very insulted at how much more I enjoyed this meal. So if you <laughs> want to bring your marriage together or break it up with delicious HelloFresh meals go to hellofresh.co.uk slash newfish that's N-E-W-F-I-S-H. And if you use that link, you'll get 60% of your first order and 25% of the next two months. That's right. So head to hellofresh.co.uk slash newfish and you're going to get access to super quick recipes. There's healthy choices. There's veggie options. There's lots of variations, including just healthy snacks. And if you use that link, you're going to get 60% off your first order and 25% off the next two months. So keep your marriage safe and your kids alive. And on with the show. On with the podcast. Okay, it's time for fact number two, and that's my fact. My fact is that 18th century sea captains sometimes used their sailors as sails. Brilliant. Brilliant. 
This is actually in a, a book called Sea People by a woman called Christina Thompson. And it's such a good book. It's so fantastically written. And this is a practice called Manning the Four Shrouds. And it was used throughout kind of the great age of sail, which I suppose is 15th century to 19th century, a long period. And basically, if the wind is too high, if there's a big gale, if there's a storm, then it's very dangerous to put your sails up uh, because they could be completely shredded. The mast could be toppled. The boat's going to Oh, yeah, the... you don't want to get any of your sails shredded. Instead, put one of your men up there. <laughs> <laughs> We've got 400 sailors and only one big sail. So... <laughs> No, uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> Set up Stanley Big Shirt. <laughs> Is that a reference to my friend? Yeah. That's very good, because we've never mentioned him on here. Have we? No, I don't think so. You used to have a friend whose nickname was Stanley Big, Big Shirt. Shirt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so good, because it, it worked for the listener, and then it worked even better for James on a higher level. Thank you. So this is where the captain of a ship would say to Stanley Big Shirt and co, um, <laughs> could you please climb up onto the four shrouds? So the shrouds of a ship are, if you see a big sailing ship, there's what look like, um, you know, like assault course rope ladders and climbing frames. Yeah, like that you see rigging in the kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. That rigging is what the shrouds are and they're what support the masts and you can climb up them really easily. So the sailors would all climb up and they'd spread out their hands and legs and they'd literally just face up against the wind. It just sounds like, <laughs> Utter nonsense, doesn't it? <laughs> so they'd need a density of sailors such that it was the solid wall yeah, of sailors. That's yeah. Or... That's a lot of sailors. One of a lot of sailors. Sails can have holes in, can't they, and still be pretty functional. But you get most of the effect. I think, I think that yeah. was because you but, didn't want it to be too strong. That was the thing. They're not going right. to be as strong as a sail. But there was one. There was a ship captained by Sir Hyde Parker in the 1700s where 200 sailors were sent up into the rigging. The one that Christina Thompson in her book refers to is Commodore George Anson, who was involved in the War of Jenkins' Ear, which oh, yeah. I think we must ah. have mentioned. I don't but... think we have. And again, for international listeners, this was a huge deal yeah. for Britain, the War I, of Jenkins' I Ear. I actually think for British <laughs> listeners, um, <laughs> the War of Jenkins' Ear is, I don't think it's GCSE syllabus. It was, seven, it was about seven years. No, I'm thinking of the Seven Years' War. Sorry, no, disregard that. That was a bigger deal. Yeah. Honestly, it goes World War II, World War I, War of Jenkins' Ear are the three main things on the yeah. syllabus in English schools, certainly. Um, and basically, there's the War of Jenkins' Ear in 1740, which was named after a humorous slam in Parliament uh, where someone waved an ear around. Google it. Um, oh, I and it was, I was after someone. I thought someone's ear got blown off. Yeah, his I, ear got cut off in a in a naval fracas. I thought it did, and then whole... didn't the cut off ear get waved around? I think I might have made up that bit. I've embellished it in my head. Yeah, I don't think you're allowed props in the House of Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the rule. You're right. And that's why they've had to remove the official rubber chicken from Parliament. It's really sad. They're allowed the scepter, and that's the one prop they have. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this captain recorded in his diary in 1740 that we dared not venture any sail abroad, so instead we had to put the helm aweather, as in, I think, face the helm towards the wind and man the four shrouds. And in kind of classic 1700s understatement, he recorded it proved successful for the end intended, although one of our best men did go overboard. Wow. Um, Gosh, so yeah, that. good trick. Feels like a rare move. Yeah, it must have been. They it weren't was, kind of doing it often. I would say it was what we might call a life hack. It came up a bit. I was reading in a um, <laughs> in Captain's <laughs> Weekly these these twelve weird tricks. <laughs> you won't believe number eight. <laughs> sailors about... hate him. <laughs> but like, was that the only thing they used the sailors for? Could you have used one as an oar, for instance? Lovely. <laughs> like yeah. your oh, tallest, God. straightest soldier. Big could be stiff used Tony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Um, I, I didn't read. You could look into that because right. they did sometimes. I read one um, thing in an 1810 book of sailing instructions that said if you're in a gale, you either man the fore shrouds or if you've got some spare canvas or hammocks, which I guess the sailors are desperately struggling for hammocks at this point to yeah. get up there instead. If you've got some hammocks, you put them up oh, there instead. Clever. Yeah. Well, that did actually happen once with the hammocks, but in the 1920s. So that was a good, what, 200 years after? They were still using random random hammocks and blankets and things. So why were they doing that? Yeah, so there was a US submarine that ran out of fuel Mm -hmm. and lost communication. A sail not very useful in the submarine, (laughs) I would say. You would think, you would think. There should be a milk cow around here somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, take them all out at that point. They thought, how are we going to get home? And so the commanding officer officer basically commanded his men to grab the hammocks and grab the blankets and grab the bunk bed frames mm-hmm. and they built masts and sails Amazing. and put them on their submarine and sailed their submarine home that's so cool because submarines incredible. were mostly surface vessels weren't they in the 10s and 20s were you know they, they... Well, they they just called marines then. (laughs) Well, they couldn't go down for long, could they? They could, like, Uh, early proto-submarines. Did everyone on board have to hold their breath? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) God, Age of Sail stuff is so so cool. Like, I just, I I really, really like all of it. So I got some nautical slang for you. Oh, yeah. The the manning the four shrouds thing, I thought we could price more. So this is to a guide to nautical slang from John Hard. And it was published only about 30 years ago, so it's got some more modern stuff. Um, Bronzy, bronzy. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's where you come third in a battle that's right <laughs> really bad result gold and silver and you're like oh bad news we got bronzy bronzy this time you didn't even lose yeah. um, no that's suntanned if you're suntanned um, ah. bunch of bastards the French <laughs> always correct but, but it's also some tangled rope oh. B- bunghole ah now <laughs> is it <laughs> Is it actually, it the, the, the newest recruit or... always had to. It was part of the initiation ceremony, tap, wasn't tap it? The bunghole, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's just some cheese. What? What? Cheese. Is it? Do they use the cheese yeah. sometimes to bung up holes? Yeah, in the I believe so. It's just bunghole is, is cheese. Do you know what a nip cheese was? Oh no! Uh, this was in a book called The Sailor's Word Book: An Alphabetical Digest of Nautical Terms, which is a very very old um, nip cheese. Uh, nip cheese. So I'm imagining it's not a kind of cheese. Is it just mice on, on boats? Oh, that's a great one. No, it's not quite that. Leeing, any ideas? Oh, I mean, yes, but... Uh... <laughs> Don't hang back, I'm not sure. Come on, in. Is it a nipple thing? No, it's not. Andy. Well, quite. Yeah. As in, like, you guys so are parents. Ne- You've heard of, like, neck cheese, right? Oh, neck as in they get stuck in the fold. Yeah, children. you know, yeah. like, you know, kind of when a baby's breastfeeding and then the breast milk kind of dribbles down and then kind of gets stuck in the folds of their neck. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's never quite not... got to a cheese-like status, I have to say, in my experience. I've never been able to ferment it properly. <laughs> but despite your best efforts, is it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love any cheese. No, it's not the same as that, but on the nipples. Um, <laughs> it's the name for a purser's steward. So the person oh. who looks after the money, if you imagine like cutting bits of cheese mm-hmm. um, to nice. kind of so a bit share che- the money. It's like cheese pairing. He's a bit, yeah, he's exactly a bit like stingy. That. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Do you know why we call a poop deck a poop deck? Everyone this just shat on it. No, I actually don't know. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> shat on it. That's what they did with it. Yeah. What's, right. a, what's a poop deck? Well, particular deck on the ship, yeah. not the main deck. It's the back, the back. One. Well, there's the fore deck, there's the main deck, and the, I don't know where the poop deck is actually. Well, is if you knew that, it yeah. might give you a clue. Is it, is it at the back? It's on the stern, and it comes from the French la poupe, 
which means the stern Lovely. of a boat. <laughs> That's great. Uh, and for that reason, you have some other things. You have the pooping sea. Uh, and that is where you're going down the sea and the the current is going at the same speed as your stern. So your rudder can't really get any purchase because oh, you're going at the same speed as the water. Oh, that's great. Do you know what a bunting tosser is? <laughs> Someone from the Jubilee, is it? Like... That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, actually, you're you're dead on. Oh, have I? Well, it kind of. It's a, it is flag related. Oh. It's so it's a sig- would... it's a radio operator, mm-hmm. and that would traditionally have been a signalman uh, who has oh, is raising uh, the signal sure. flags. And so, bunting tosser. That's exactly what I said. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Snorkers. <laughs> Just sausages, guys. Just sausages. And the beachmaster. The beachmaster. Uh, he was someone who stood on the beach and said, <laughs> this way, guys. This way. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, too far. Too far. <laughs> oh, shit. Do you know what? I'm going to give you that. Yes. Wow. Well, and again, is it this is going to be something completely different. <laughs> Did he have those kind of like ping pong bats? <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah. It's a superior officer who was appointed to lead the storming party. The beachmaster. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas we talk, do you remember we talked a few weeks ago about elephant seals? Their beachmasters are oh. Haribs of uh, junior. Yeah. yeah. Is there ever been a situation where an elephant seal beachmaster <laughs> and a British naval beachmaster have been um, mixed up with hilarious consequences? I've met dozens. <laughs> oh no! Oh, you get the storming party is just one elephant seal with his harem of a hundred females. That's great. I mean, you would run away, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Scary. This is sort of relates back to the Bletchley fact, but there was a Cornish pirate called Robert Culliford, and he once loaded their cannons with China crockery in the oh. hope that oh. it would tear the um, sails of the opposition ships. That's a great idea. And did it? How did that work? It did not work well. They actually exploded into a fine powder by the time they had met the enemy yeah. sails. So just sort of <laughs> rained down. Nice, nice, nice bit of rain. Wow. Yes. I think snow. they also, they did that in the Trojan War, didn't they? And that's why Greek people to this day smash plates <laughs> at the end of a meal. Have you heard of the Pine Tree Riot? This is a thing that pretty much prompted the American War of Independence and was directly related to the Navy. Okay, well, was it tax related? Yes. Um, just getting it all right. <laughs> I mean, that actually you have got right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, Britain and France both wanted to yeah. build ships, and to build a ship with a big mast, you need a big mm. tree. I got this, by the way, from a brilliant book called The Age of Wood, which is so, such a good book. You it's thought it was something wood. different, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, Britain had very little forest at this time, partly because it turned it all into ships, and um, had to get them from America, because in America there are these gorgeous massive pine trees that will make a cracking mast yeah and they 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 had all sorts of trouble they basically decreed right all trees over 24 inches across which is what you need for a ship's mast they belong to the crown and we mark them with a little arrow and their hours and you can't have them you colonists and in fact having wide floorboards was a sign that you were a patriotic american colonist that you were cocking a snook at the british because you had used these wide trees nice. rather than like, Re- the British you rebel them. you with your and wide I, floorboards <laughs> and this all led to this confrontation where the British sent the authorities to try and say look these really are our trees and the Americans kind of sent them away with their tail between their legs and embarrassed them and humiliated them and this was a thing called the Pine Tree Riot and that was 1772 and that pretty much led on to the Boston Tea Party 1773 
Oh, and from there, you know, really? it just sort of all went from there. Everything went downhill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was like that was mostly mast related. Oh, that yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The age of wood, by the way, just count the rings. That'll do it. <laughs> Fantastic. James, we did sign a 300-page contract. (laughs) I was looking a bit into um, what sails are made out of. And nowadays, they can be all sorts from natural fibres like cotton and flax to synthetic fibres like nylon, polyester, all of that. But one thing I found that was quite interesting to me was that hemp was used basically throughout the ship for everything. Mm. So hemp oil was used in the lamps. Um, The sailors would wear clothing made out of hemp. The ship's logs would be written on hemp paper. But it turns (laughs) out that some of these massive sailing ships, they would actually carry hemp seeds with them so that if they ended up in a shipwreck or they had damage, they could plant the seeds to grow hemp. And And then mend their rope or their canvas because hemp is one of the fastest growing plants on earth that's fantastic that's so cool and they would use hemp to make the canvas for the sails and the ropes and the word canvas actually comes from the word cannabis Oh, oh that's good. Yeah, it's how which kind is the of the same plant as hemp. Which is yeah for any ish. for any squares listening. <laughs> 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 Sorry, just quick mention of the old wacky backy. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay, we should move on to fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that reindeer can chew in their sleep. Cool. Oh, that's useful. It's so cool. Gaviscon must do good business in the reindeer community, doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs> so it's really clever. It's all to do with where they live, because they live in the very high regions of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily higher, I would say. You mean further north? North. <laughs> not like on top of Everest. Okay, if we're being squares about it. Then they live, this they is live why in... you never travel north of Watford. You're like, oh, it's so high up I can't, there. I can't get the oxygen. Um, okay, they live in the Arctic Circle. We're being like dweeby, yeah, sure. And they, the obviously the light there changes a lot, doesn't it? So some of the year it's always light, some of the year it's never light. Uh, it's dark for ages, yeah. and they have a very very weak body clock. So in okay. summer they have to eat a great deal all the time to gain weight to survive the winter, and they're ruminants. So they bring food back up from one of their stomachs and they keep chewing it, and um, because they're having to do a lot of this during the summer they will regurgitate food and they will keep chewing it while they're asleep. We weren't sure before what they were doing. They just look a bit dazed and a bit uh, dozy. And the Norwegian Institute of Bioeconomy Research have measured their brainwaves while they're doing this oh. standing around chewing. And it turns out they are in a light stage of sleep while they're eating. That's really Brilliant. Good. Wait, we couldn't tell if they were asleep. Do they not have their eyes closed? I think brain activity is a better guide, isn't it, than whether you've got your yeah. eyes closed. It's not like every time you close your eyes, you're asleep. No, I know. I just feel like I'd know if I just looked at a reindeer, you'd be like, well, they're obviously oh, asleep. You just fell asleep for a second there, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That thing is really interesting about their body clocks because it means they don't get jet lagged, right? So our mm. body clock is 24 hours. Yeah. We deal with the light, the dark. We're on a 24 hour clock. If we go through some time zones, then we're not on 24 hours anymore and we're <laughs> all over the place. Yeah. But if reindeers would do regular flights to Australia, brilliant. Like they might do once a year to deliver presents, for instance. Yes. Mm. Uh, they wouldn't get jet lagged. 
And the interesting thing about that is, you know, there are gene variants that cause this and maybe we can turn those genes on and off in humans one day to stop humans from getting cool. jet lagged. That and feels like a drastic <laughs> intervention. Yeah, we would also lag. we would also grow horns. And... <laughs> cool. um, yeah, reindeer. Reindeer are cool, aren't they? Most of my facts here are about the Sami people who are obsessed with reindeer. Um, but, well, not, I say obsessed. Obsessed with, hugely reliant on them for their survival. <laughs> Guys, probably, get over there. Obsessed with oxygen and water. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I love the Sami people. They are the people who live up in, in the Arctic Circle, really, in the northern parts of Norway and Sweden and Finland. The high places of the earth. The high places, yes. Oh. So they paid their taxes in live reindeer for a long time. They have special um, designations sort of in the sort of equivalent of the Magna Carta of that region. So it's called the Lap Codicil, and it was a clause added to the 1751 treaty, which designated the borders of all those countries. And it said that they are allowed to move totally freely across borders because the reindeer need to move across borders and they need to yeah. herd them. Uh, although herding reindeer is basically just following them, I think. Oh, really? The reindeer <laughs> go where they want to find food, to get sustenance, to go to better climates, and the Sami people just follow them to make sure they keep that hold of them. That is mostly flock. true. You can get them to go in the direction you want. Mm -hmm. uh, and the way you do that is you piss in a bottle and you yeah. carry it around with you. And if they start going in the direction you don't want them to go in, you pour a little bit in this direction and they all go, oh, piss, lovely. And they all walk towards where the piss smell is. Because it's like got salt and minerals and stuff oh, like that. Useful. Just a life hack, we call that. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they have over a thousand words for reindeer. Do they? They really do. Because reindeer are so important. So they'll, they have like a liami, which means a short, fat female reindeer. They have a snari. A reindeer whose antlers are short and branched. A Nujiru is an unmanageable female. And you're a bit sexist, these names, aren't they? Uh, yeah. I There's mean, no I room think... for your woke political niceties in the unforgiving tundra, James. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of snowflakes up there, I have heard, so... <laughs> Oh, um, that's cool. That's they do a, have a yeah. word for a bull with one testicle. So maybe the feminist uh, reindeer are getting upset and cutting <laughs> off the testicles of the males. Um, they have night vision goggles, effectively, inside their eyes. Reindeer. Reindeer. Reindeer, yeah. yeah. Nice. Not the yeah. Sammy. Not the uh, people. Not the Sammy, no. So reindeer's eyes change colour over the season. So they're golden in summer and then they're blue in the winter. And the reason that's helpful is that in winter they can see a lot more UV light. And the reason that UV light is helpful is that their favourite food is this thing called reindeer moss. God. Disappointingly, it's a kind of lichen. But <laughs> it's really yummy and it's very nutritious and there's a lot of it about in the Arctic. So reindeer love it and uh, they like to find it. And it's impossible for a human to find it because it's pale. But to a reindeer, it's incredibly obvious where the patches of reindeer moss are because it looks a completely different colour to them. Because I think snow gives off UV, UV light, doesn't it? Whereas yeah. it doesn't, so it looks like dark ah, patches on the snow. Okay. Because they have yeah. this ability to see the UV light, they can see yeah. where the moss is. So it's, it's very, very cool. They're very well adapted for their environment. What's interesting is that they're not actually 100% sure how the eyeball actually changes from golden to blue. And we should say Ooh. as well, actually, that the colour change is not in your iris. So, no, because other, otherwise it sounds insane that they yeah. discovered this in like 2013. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, we've domesticated these guys for how long? We've not looked at their eyes? So it, yeah, it's not that you're looking at them on the outside and their eye colour changes. It's the inside. The oh. thing called the, it's the thing called the uh, tapetum lucidum, I think I'm saying that correctly, which is kind of on the back of the eye and it does all of the reflecting of the light yes. round your eye. Well, 
well you would see that, I reckon, is if you were taking a photo of a load of reindeer and one of them looked directly at the flash, I reckon you would see the change of colour there. Mm. Is that right? Yeah, that's why if you photograph animals in the dark, yeah, that's their mm. tapetum. Because that's why it. we get red eyes is because the back of our eyes is red because it's got a lot of blood in there. Uh, and so when the flash what? goes, you see the light. The light goes into the back of your eye where all the blood vessels are, and that's why you get red eyes. Is that why you get red eye? Yeah, yeah. In old, like mostly in old, is it on film photos? Do you get that on digital photos now? I've seen yeah. it in newer photos, yeah. Do you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've never done that. So that, that does imply that no one had ever taken a photograph yeah, of a reindeer before. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was thinking. Wow. I've never taken it with flash, at least. I think it's quite hard to take a photo of reindeer. Uh, they're very camera shy, aren't they? Well, they have a very shiny nose. So brilliant. Oh, your nose has come out red in this one and this one. <laughs> I didn't know the UK has reindeer. I was incredibly excited to find that that out. Well, what, like in the what? in the wild. Yeah. Oh. There's one wild herd of reindeer, and they're at the Cairngorm Reindeer Centre. But they are uh, wild. It's not a zoo or a, an enclosure. They're not penned. High up. Very high up near Inverness. I mean, probably in the top of the mountains because it's the Cairngorms, I was thinking, as mm -hmm. opposed to... Well, that too. Um, <laughs> and they were introduced by this uh, great couple, uh, Mikkel Utzi and his wife, uh, Dr. Ethel Lindgren, in 1952. Probably overshadowed by the change of monarchy and the Everest expedition, but still. <laughs> and they gave them all these spurious reasons of why we could... Because it's basically early rewilding. You yeah. know, it's just mm -hmm. by any other name. And the, the reasons they gave, these two scientists, they said, well, great source of meat, great source of fur, useful for military transport in case of the Cold War turning hot. Oh. Sure. I saw that and I, I couldn't work out what did they imagine that they would be bringing the reindeer to the Soviet Union and using them to transport stuff like military equipment or maybe or like are we being invaded nuclear winter maybe and so we get a load of snow yeah. they might be useful yeah. uh... there was a story in the <laughs> Russian press in the when was this it was in the 2000s that um, criminals like gangs were using reindeer to do their crimes and the reason being that they were in Siberia so the police are coming to get them and the police had snowmobiles but the reindeer were quicker than the snowmobiles Ooh. Uh, and so the criminals realised that and they would use them to but get... Is there like getaway vehicles? Yeah, yeah, getaway That's reindeer cool. Would they ride them? Uh, no, you can't. No, they no. would be pulled on sleighs. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound weird, these Gopnik Russian criminals being pulled by... If and children a... running to them going, <laughs> Well, if you've just robbed a bank, though, you've probably got sacks of money waiting yeah. on the back of the sleigh. Yeah. And one will fall Maybe off. Maybe that's the origin of the Santa Claus myth. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the Kangol Reindeer Centred staff, very excitingly, they did a naked calendar just a few years ago. <laughs> to raise Naked humans or naked reindeer? <laughs> Naked, the reindeer, I think, were mostly in harnesses and things. But the, They didn't the shave them all. <laughs> they all died of cold. Um, no, but there were 17 herders, and they all, they were all posing and they all together to raise mm. money for the Cairngorms Mountain Rescue Team. Do we approve of this? I mean, like, I don't mind that group of, what were they, Women's Institute people doing it the first time. But I you have repeatedly was, turned down well, my idea, James, <laughs> for a fish nude calendar <laughs> where we're all hiding behind facts. <laughs> This trend of people doing this? Well, I don't know. I'll just give you a line from the photographer who said... <laughs> who said, it's very cold <laughs> in the Cairngorms. <laughs> um, taking pictures of my naked friends and colleagues, not to mention my girlfriend's mum, was certainly a surreal experience. <laughs> so... I can't believe they fell for it, he said. <laughs> He goes from town to town proposing naked calendars. It's a brilliant idea for a pervert scam, isn't it? 
just go to another office. Hello. Uh, I'm just wondering if you'd like a naked can. Cherry. What a dark film calendar girls become when you put that lens on it. Oh, oh good gracious. Uh, more um, stuff on reindeers, reindeers. guys. Yeah, um, they are. They are very fast. The, the robbers are right. Oh, they yeah. and they're fast and very young. They can outrun an Olympic sprinter when they're only a day old. Stop it! That's so <laughs> cool. What? <laughs> Newborns can stand and walk almost straight away, and then within an hour they can run. That is amazing. Wow. Which is that good. Is it makes me wonder if they sort of do that competition like within 15 minutes. Some parents are like, mine's actually running already. Insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. um, you should get Santa's reindeer to be your financial advisors. Go on. Okay. Because yeah. oh, yeah. they're not employed for the rest of the year. Very and... nice. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Or they're free so in it's... January for the tax deadline. Exactly. <laughs> they're yeah. twiddling their hooves otherwise. <laughs> um, so what it is is that a team of researchers at Dartmouth College, bearing in mind this is an Ivy League university, mm -hmm. right? They did a very, very serious study where they got a bunch <laughs> of Santa's reindeer at a local kind of Christmas theme park. They were Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donna, Blitzen, Rudolph, and Boris. Nice. Boris, <laughs> Boris was a trainee. Um, <laughs> can I just ask, are these real reindeer and are they really Santa's reindeer? They are real reindeer right, and okay. Santa is real. So Okay, cool. Yeah. So they're a living reindeer. It wasn't like... Yes. Mod okay, yes. right. And what they did was they laid out copies of the Wall Street Journal stock pages <laughs> on the floor of their barn <laughs> and they got them to select stocks that they wanted them to buy. So they made hoof prints on the newspaper pages and then they went and purchased these stocks to create a reindeer portfolio. Lovely. And they... <laughs> They found that it outdid the S&P 500, which is the kind of top 500 companies in the US. It outdid the growth of those companies by wow. 5%. And apparently that's statistically significant. What? Is it? Is it <laughs> apparently so, says the Ivy League researchers. But wow. the thing that they, they did... That is, sorry, just to say that is significant. If you could make 5% more than the average on the stock market and you could consistently do that then you'd be very rich yeah you'd, be, you'd be doing well oh, that's the consistently thing isn't it yeah. well how do they all do we the, have is yeah. evidence that they are <laughs> well consistent. over six months but the reason why they did this um was kind of to prove that senators and congressmen who are often in america accused of using their inside knowledge to play the stock market mm. um that they, what they did was they compared the portfolios of the senators to the reindeer portfolio mm -hmm. and found that the reindeer was still better wow. than the senators <laughs> and the congressmen who had inside knowledge. And one of the researchers actually said that it turns out that these politicians are as feckless as the rest of us at stock picking. Well, it could be that they're scrupulously honest and they don't use any of their internal knowledge. Very, very yeah. good point. Very good point. And maybe they prove that with the reindeer portfolio. Or it could be reindeers are absolute massive inside of <laughs> <laughs> They're going around the country once a year. Yeah, like, while Santa's delivering the presents, they're hacking into emails. They're going through the filing cabinet. That's <laughs> why, yeah, yeah, they always take a bite out of the apple, drink the sherry, and go through all of your books, don't they? <laughs> why are there hoof prints left inside the house after he's been? It doesn't make any sense. No, you're so right. Do they, they fall down the, the chimney? They should be on the roof. Yeah. Hoof on the roof. That's a good title for a children's book. Lovely. Um, don't give your reindeers carrots. Why not? I don't have any reindeers. Next question. <laughs> no, I'm listening. I do. Um, what, yeah. What, what? Well, just because we were saying about, you know, sherry and, and mince mm -hmm. pies. I mean, don't give them them either. But um, yeah, they can't digest them. But what, really? am I, what am I going to cover my penis with in the naked calendar I'm shooting? 
<laughs> Maybe there's some other baby vegetables that they make. I don't know. I'll see if I can find a runner bean. <laughs> Uh, great stuff. <laughs> okay. All right. It's time. Need a pee. I quite. You want to go pee. now? A pea is not going to be big enough. Is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact this week, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that from 1841 to 1851, the MP for Thursk thought he was a bird. He was then replaced by a man who was later killed by a turnip. <laughs> <laughs> was he killed that... by an actual turnip or another yeah. MP who thought he was a turnip? <laughs> <laughs> he was killed by an actual turnip. Did it get into the campaign literature? Like, vote for me. The other guy thinks he's a bird. <laughs> I'm safe around turnips. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't much in the way of campaigning in these days, right. uh, especially in Thursk, uh, where <laughs> all of these people all got in without any opponents. Oh, right. uh, who do you want to hear about first? The bird or the... Or Birdman, I think. Uh, Birdman. Yeah. Okay, the Birdman of Thursk um, <laughs> was a guy called John Bell. Basically, in this area, they had to have an MP. They had a railway and, and there were a few people living there. They had to have an MP. And... There wasn't really anyone to do it. A few people from outside of the town came in. They might want to do it, but no one in the town wanted to vote for them. So they all voted for this guy called John Bell because his family owned half of the houses in the town and everyone liked them. And, you know, he was the right man for the job, really. Um, so they voted for him. But after he'd been in there for a little while, it turned out that he was of unsound mind. Mm. Uh, and they did an inquiry as to his unsoundness of mind, uh, which took place at the Three Tons Hotel in Thirsk, which is now Weatherspoons. Uh, and in this inquiry, they said that he sometimes fancied himself to be an eagle and made motions with his arms as if endeavouring to raise himself from the ground to fly. Uh, he was also convinced that someone was trying to poison him with iodine in his tea. Iodine. Uh, a bit of a callback to the last episode, Ooh. Iodine. Uh, and then on other occasions, when in company, he would forget that he was at the dinner table and start to undress himself. <laughs> okay. Uh, but in those days, there was no way to get rid of someone. If they were an MP and there wasn't an election, and even if there was an election and people there wanted to send back the same guy, there's no way to get rid of them if they were of unsound mind. Wow. I guess I don't even know how you would... Now, because in fact, then legislation was introduced and then there were various upgrades to it. But I think it was all repealed in about 2012 or 13. So, you know, well, I can't imagine any of our politicians would be of unsound mind. You're right. It's just not relevant anymore. Uh, and we, anyway, he unfortunately died. We, we, um, was he an honest MP, by the way, or was he uh, was he feathering his own nest? Very good. Thank right. you. Any more of that? No, no, no. I just had that one stored up and I didn't want I didn't want it to. <laughs> Sit around inside me. I can't wait for your turnip pun that's <laughs> upcoming. Um, because he was replaced by a guy called Sir William Payne Galway. Uh, and he was out shooting in the parish and he walked across a turnip field and he fell with his body onto a turnip. Oh. I'm quoting from the York Herald here. He fell with his body onto a turnip, sustaining severe internal injuries. Uh, no, that's a fake excuse when you turn up to the hospital, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> And oh, it, the and Hoover! I just tripped. <laughs> he was, was on. nakedly shooting in a field, and he fell, and the turnip went up his ass. Oh, no, uh, no, he um, he fell on the turnip Gosh. and injured himself. And the next day, he, yeah. he 
failed to recover. And turnips are not, I mean, they're not funny things to fall, like, to fall onto. They're, they're big, serious, they're big, hard things, you know. I mean, turnips are inherently funny, I think. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I said that about them not being funny. Um, he wasn't the only MP who died in a turnip-related incident. I don't know if you guys found the story of Lewis Fenton, the Whig MP for Huddersfield. No. Oh, okay, okay. So he uh, died a little earlier than this. It was This was 1833, about 50 years before. And he fell out of a window at home. And he very sadly died of his injuries. You know, tragic. And his widow explained that he was in the habit of going up to the attic to look out <laughs> of the window at a piece of ground where his turnips were growing. Oh yeah. To make sure that the cows had not also his cows had not got into the turnip right. enclosure and were not you know. So yeah. when he'd disappear for hours at a time, he'd be like, "No, darling, no, no, no I'm, I'm watching the turnips. I promise, I'm watching There's the some turnips." Strange noises from that attic. No, no, that's just my turnip watching. I don't think we can imply anything unsavoury about a turnip. <laughs> the man's dead. We should be, you know. And he probably just was looking so much that he overbalanced and tipped out of the window. Must. Yeah. Must have been, yeah. Um, I was ju- just the word for the mental disorder that you have mm. when you think you are, let's say, a bird is clinical lycanthropy, which I just looked up and I was um, wondering whether, whether it was a thing. People like being think. a werewolf. I think lycanthropy must be werewolf. It like comes a, from uh, the idea of yeah, exactly being like a wolf, but it applies to thinking you're like any animal. I guess they couldn't be asked to come up with a different word for you thinking think it would you're be like zoanthropy or something. Yeah. I get, it must be more common to think you're a wolf, but yeah. I just um, <laughs> I like the Wikipedia page on clinical lycanthropy just because um, it used the case history of a 25 year old man who was sent for treatment during a period of excessive hand washing, irritable behaviour, decreased sleep, and acting like a buffalo. <laughs> Buffaloes famously obsessively wash their hands. And they do. No, that's a bison. <laughs> Brilliant. There you go. Brilliant. <laughs> That's a bucket list joke. <laughs> that was one. I got that from a Christmas cracker 25 years ago and I've been trying to shoehorn it in. Huh. Oh, oh my god. That was bad. Oh, very um, nice. The MP's page on Wikipedia for notable MPs with records in various directions is unbelievably good. I don't know who's written it, but it's... What do you mean records in directions? So here, here's one. Uh, the youngest MP ever in the House of Commons in England. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Christopher Monk, who was elected MP for Devon aged 13. Yeah. How that old did he become young. a monk? That's the question. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, um, you know, the interesting thing about Christopher Monk, I hadn't seen that page, but I do have him in my notes. Fantastic. Um, he, in 1681, arranged a boxing match between his butler and his butcher, which is the first recorded boxing match in England. That's really good. Yeah, 1681. Well, he was a real man of the people as well, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the butcher wow. one, we know. Um, but we don't know much more about that. He had a big right hook, didn't he? Yeah, I like it. Nice. Very good. Yes. Thank you. They're all coming out tonight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, wow. But the oldest MP, Samuel Young, ironically. No. Yeah. no. That's brilliant. He served until he was 96 years old. Wow. Really impressive. I mean, yeah. yeah. He I mean, how old was Baroness Trumpington when she died? She was she yeah, really she was old. old. Well, she 90s, was in the Lords, 90s. and I think most people uh, yeah. in the Lords are at least ninety, mm. aren't they? But you know, Parliament sort of Parliament wasn't for a long time. It was very un, not unofficial, but you know, it was local landowners, and then it was yeah. barons, and then as they gradually extended the right to vote to more people, they gradually thought can't probably can't be only baronets. We've got in the House of Commons or whatever. You know, it was sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked um, George Sitwell. 
who's actually Edith, Edith Sitwell, the poet's dad, um, but he was an MP in the 1880s and 90s, MP for Scarborough, and he was just a fun guy. He spent his time writing books. He wrote books on pig keeping in the 13th century, lepers squints, acorns as an article of medieval diet, and the history of the fork. Um, lepers squints? Yeah, wrote a book. I don't think he got these books published. Um, <laughs> he sounds very much like a QI researcher. Yeah, he really does. Researching random topics and of his own interest. He does, know. and actually very creative as well, as we all have to be, because he, <laughs> he invented a musical toothbrush that played a song while you cleaned your teeth. That is good. That's in good. When? In the 1880s? Yeah. He also invented a mini gun for shooting wasps <laughs> and the Sitwell egg. It was, um, it was nothing... You know, you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't sit on it. It wasn't a Gwyneth Paltrow kind of precursor. You're sitting well, though. <laughs> Tell got me it, about it. Got an egg up there. No, it was made of um, smoked meat, which was the yolk, and then it was wrapped in the white, which was rice, and then a synthetic shell around it, and then he tried to sell it into Selfridges. So he was trying to... He's trying to have a new Scotch egg, basically. Kind of. This but is, with, this is, this but with rice, did you say? With rice, exactly. Well, that's like an umusubi, like the kind of Japanese one. Yes, I was actually going to say sushi, but it sounds like you've said the proper thing <laughs> that it is. <laughs> Um, when, apparently when he went to Selfridges he walked into the into the front door and said I am Sir George Sitwell and I brought my egg with me <laughs> hello dragons <laughs> oh I love um, Ignatius Timothy Trebitch Lincoln. So do I. <laughs> Another man of the people, judging by his name, clearly. But he had the most insane CV of anybody I have ever heard of. So he was born in Hungary to an Orthodox Jewish family. He was a student rabbi, but then he became wanted for petty theft. So he fled to London. He became a Christian. And then he went to Canada as a Presbyterian missionary. And then he went back to England as an Anglican curate. And then he was an MP for Darlington in wow. 1910. Great. He ran out of money, so he stopped being an MP. He became a speculator in Romanian oil, a German <laughs> continental spy in World War One, and then a munition merchant in China. And then he converted to Buddhism, became a wow. monk, and then tried to become a Nazi collaborator. <laughs> say, that all sounds very tiring. He could have just been a liar. <laughs> <laughs> and then you could do all that stuff. <laughs> That's true. But the absolute cherry on the cake for me is that he made contact with the Nazis, right? Because he said to him, listen, I have declared myself the Dalai Lama. Very <laughs> powerful move. And I yeah. am backed by the Japanese. The oh. Tibetans were less keen <laughs> yeah. on this idea. But the Japanese were like, yeah, this random Hungarian Jewish Christian MP guy, he can be our Dalai Lama. And he said, I can help you lead a Buddhist uprising in the East oh. for the Nazis. Wow. That's a great alternative history of the war. Right. Did they and go for it? Unfortunately, they didn't. Sadly. Sadly. Sadly, sadly <laughs> the Nazis didn't win the war. <laughs> but what, how amazing would history would have yeah. been yeah. if the Hungarian Dalai Lama... Good grief. Um, the names are incredible. What was he called? Ignatius? Ignatius Timothy Trebich Lincoln. They do have just good... I, think, do. I don't know whether it's like minor aristocracy who were the kind of people who were MPs in the 17th century, but Sir Freshville Hollers... Lovely. Grimsby. Uh, I was looking at MPs who'd been injured in the line of, not the line of duty, actually, just in their lives in general, because there were lots who'd lost arms in sea battles, as Sir Freshville did. Sackville Tufton was wounded mm -hmm. at the Battle of Schooneveld. Brooke Watson lost his right leg to a shark in Havana in 1749. I mean, these guys had wow. really wow. interesting careers. Um, What's he doing there? 
sailing around. Um, John he was being used as an oar, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> John Stubbs, I love this. This is a really interesting one. He was the MP for Great Yarmouth. He lost a hand for distributing a pamphlet in 1579. What, to a lion? <laughs> oh, to a paper cut. <laughs> Bad paper cut. His pamphlet was titled The Discovery of a Gaping Gulf Whereunto England is like to be swallowed by another French marriage if the Lord forbid not the bans. And it was arguing that Queen Elizabeth was too old to have children and mm. she should therefore not marry the Duke of Anjou, who was oh, a yeah. French prince, and uh, he was sentenced to death. And then that was commuted to losing a hand. And then... Just before it happened, he said, pray for me now. My calamity is at hand. Oh, yeah. Oh, just a nice, nice little pun oh. to go before... He should have had a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you would have loved my bison joke earlier. <laughs> um, speaking yeah. of excellent names, just oh, got yeah. a very quick one here for you. The Labour MP for Broxtow from 1929 to 1953 was called Seymour Cox. Brilliant. Wow. Brilliant. <laughs> I can't believe I've never heard of him. I mean, as if you're not going to cross next to his you name. You don't need to come back <laughs> at all, do you? <laughs> <We don't. laughs> Seymour Cox. <laughs> <laughs> that was his name. It was also his campaign slogan. <laughs> but that's like a name that Bart would ring up Moe's bar with. <laughs> I don't know what X-rated Simpsons you've been watching. <laughs> oh dear! Wow, Seymour uh, Cox. Um, just one more city MP. Or eccentric yeah. MP. Yeah. Um, God, it's so hard to choose. There have been so many, but I do like John Mitten, who was a Tory MP in 1819. Not for very long, because uh, he found it really boring. But he just did lots of fun stuff. He once rode a horse into a hotel in Leamington Spa and rode it up the grand staircase in the middle onto a balcony and then jumped it down from the balcony over the diners in the restaurant below and out through the window. If you're rich and a man, <laughs> yeah. a middle class, you could be a cuck. Yeah. You? I don't even and think no it was middle was class, to be honest. He was very, very, very... very... He uh, would hunt a lot and like to do it naked. Sometimes he'd start a hunt clothed and then apparently get so excited mid-hunt that he'd strip off all his clothes and then arrive back naked um, and in winter as well so quite hardy and he hunted ducks yeah. on a frozen lake naked as well um, he had a, he liked animals I don't know if that ingratiates it doesn't to sound you. like he did because he was hunting all the time <laughs> he liked very specific I animals I love animals I love shooting them <laughs> I love hunting them <laughs> Much like a lot of people who like hunting and killing certain animals, he loved other animals, like his horse, who he used to nap with by the fireplace and who lived inside his house with him. He's one of these people who the stories are incredible and you think he would have been a nightmare to have in your extended family because it's always mad Jack Mitten's turned up and done something wacky again. Yeah. And then I think he died in poverty, in debt, in prison in, at the age oh, of about did he? 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's... Am I allowed to say good? <laughs> well, yeah, you can say what you like. Yeah, yeah. He was a, he was a, he was a very eccentric dude. He was. He loved being naked. Um, he... That's not eccentric. No, it's illegal. It's not being illegal. Naked is it's not actually illegal. only illegal if you're causing harm or distress or intending to. Sorry, you don't need to justify yourself to me. <laughs> and that very well positioned Mike. baby carrot <laughs> saves your blushes anyway. My calendar is not, it's not a company one. It's just, this is actually legal. Calendar 2024. <laughs> I'm not intending alarm or distress. And if you feel it, that's on you. <laughs> I apologise if. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about the way you feel. <laughs> OK, 
Okay, that's all of our facts. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another episode. In the meantime, you can get in touch with any of us on various social media accounts. James? Uh, I'm on Twitter, at James Harkin. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. Uh, Liang? I'm not on anything. Good on you. Me neither. But if you want to get in touch with the lot of us, you can email podcast.qi.com or you can tweet at no such thing. Or feel free to go to our website where you can get all our episodes and links to various other things that we do. That's no such thing as a fish.com. Uh, that will also give you a link to Club Fish, which is our special secret society, subscriber society, where we put all of our good content. Um, <laughs> I think it's where you can buy Andy's new calendar, isn't it? it certainly is. <laughs> You actually get sent one whether you want to or not. You have to pay extra not to get the calendar. Uh, and other than that, please join us again next week for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again. Goodbye. Goodbye.